Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you again for joining us. I trust that you are enjoying and sharing some of the things that we are sharing. I think to me, these are revolutionary teaching. They certainly have transformed my life so that I found that the Christian journey becomes so enjoyable that I used to sing a song years ago called, Sweeter Gets the Journey Every Day. And it truly has when you realize that the gospel really gives you back your life, the abundant life not just a life after you've lived 70 or 80 years in misery, and then you, you know, given up everything that you enjoyed in this life, and then you get to go there and be happy, but because it gives you this incredible abundant life right now. Now, let me just review just a little bit, because I, I've, I've already shared quite a bit uh, on the book of Romans. We are This is the third segment on the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. We're about to enter into, I think, a portion that is revolutionary, and uh, maybe some of the things that I'm going to share you've not seen before. They are fairly fresh to me. But I want to encourage you that if you've missed some of what built up to this, to please go back and review them on our YouTube channel, as long as we keep them up there, or listen to them on our podcast or the RSS feed. You can get our podcast through Spotify, but you can also get it by going to my website at lenhouse.com, upper right-hand corner, there are little icons that if you just click on them, it will take you directly to our YouTube channel, to our podcast, and then to the RSS feed. Let me get in the Word again today, because we're dealing with Romans 8, and I'm going to come down through here and try not to spend too much time in uh, building this up. Once again, I'll say quickly that Romans 7 was Paul talking about the dilemma of a man under the law. When I want to do good, evil is present with me, and what I hate, that's what I seem to do, but what I want to do good, it seems like the evil is present with me. Paul was in this roller coaster ride that most of us think are the dilemma of the Christian journey, which it is not the case. Romans 7 is the description of a man who was under the law, trying to do it through human strength, flesh, and effort. And he calls being in the flesh in Romans chapter 7, I believe it is in verse number 5, he says, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So he talks about being in the flesh in Romans 7 as trying to do these things through human effort and through the strength of what you can produce through the law. And Paul tells this in in Romans 7 that I was alive once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And so he begins to talk about this dilemma, and he ends chapter 7 by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And the key word there is the body of this death. He's talking about his connection through the old man and trying to do this stuff by modifying the behavior of an old creation man through the body of the strength of human flesh, to try to do it to the body of the law as well. Now, let me just tell you that as we get down into this chapter, Paul, see, we, 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 we read these chapters as if they are like something we read this week and the next week we read, we read another chapter. 
But if you will read this as a letter, like it was written, and start to remember key words, like Paul said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God he will. Then when you get down here in Romans 8, and he says that we are waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body, that he's just not talking about immortality way out in the distant future. He's talking about the deliverance from this old covenant paradigm of being in the flesh. And last week, I shared with you several scriptures, and I'm going to share them again with you this week to show you that he's talking about when he talks about being in the flesh, and who, do, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, that he's talking about trying to do this through human effort and human strength. In Romans 7, I read it to you a few minutes ago, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that we're delivered from the law. See, people don't want to preach that we're delivered from the law. That's not, that's not my opinion, it's what your Bible said. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So being in the flesh, Romans 7, verse 5, is trying to do this through the oldness of the letter and through human strength and labor. Uh, Galatians 6 and verse 12, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So he's talking about these people wanted to bring them back under legalism, back under the law, back under circumcision, so that they could have a fair show in the flesh. But even in Galatians 5, where Paul warns them in the fifth chapter of Galatians, he says, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not again in Tangled with the yoke of slavery, because under the old covenant we were servants and slaves, and the new covenant were sons and heirs. And Romans 8 is the transition. He's transitioning from Romans 7, slaves and servants, to uh, chapter 8. Now the creation is waiting on sons and daughters of God to come into their own and into revelation of their true identity. So he talks about in Galatians chapter 5 that what it means to be in the flesh is going back up under law, submitting to these Judaizers, going back into the bondage where he says, stand fast. You see, let me slow down. When I was growing up, every time I ever heard Romans chapter 5 preached, it was always Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Be not again entangled in the yoke of slavery or bondage. I always heard him preach that is don't go back to the sin you were in, which that, that, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a given. Don't go back to that. But here's what he's really saying. If you look at the context of that, the yoke of slavery is the yoke of being under law and, and not under grace. And he, ta- he begins to, to describe that in the fifth chapter of Romans, because he says, these guys are trying to bring you back up under circumcision, and they want to make a fair show in the flesh, and they want to glory in the flesh, and they want to do this through, you started out in the spirit, you think you've been made perfect in the flesh, and then he says, for the works of the flesh are made manifest, which are these, adulteries, fornication, hatred, malice, envy, strife. The product of being under the law is the works of the flesh are made manifest, which are these, hatred, malice, envy, strife, and division, is what Paul was saying, again in Romans 7, that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For the law stirred up in me, Paul said, all manner of concupiscence, or all manner of desire. In other words, it became the thing that stirred up the desire for sin for me. 
So Paul was telling when he says they in Galatians chapter 5, for the works of the flesh are made manifest, which are these. And he lists things that you see in every church because they are the product of people being under the law. And then he says, and as I've told you before, and I'm going to tell you again, that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now what he's saying there is not, you can't go to heaven. He's saying what this doing, these are enemies of heaven coming and living in you. In other words, the kingdom and the government of Holy Spirit living inside of you, these are the enemies of that. That's not about your ticket to heaven. If that's the case, if you go through Romans, or I'm sorry, if you go through Galatians chapter 5, you're going to find somewhere in one of those works of the flesh, you're going to find yourself. And if that's the case, then everybody that under the sound of my voice is probably not going to make it to heaven. But that's not what it's about. It's not getting you to heaven. It's getting heaven in you. And then once you get heaven in you and the kingdom of God and the government of Holy Spirit inside of you, then the fruit of the Spirit starts to manifest, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness against such there is no law. So he's talking about the difference in what governs you. Flesh under law, spirit under grace. One is old covenant, the other is new covenant. One is the body of sin, the other is being in the body of Christ. So when Paul was talking about, we'll get over here in just a moment, when he's talking about the adoption to wit, the redemption of your body, he is not just talking about immortality, he's talking about the answer to Paul's prayer in Romans 7, where he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Because the whole eighth chapter is how you get delivered from the bondage of the body of death is by, instead of, we read it here to you before, instead of entering, uh, instead of trying to redouble your own efforts, you simply embrace what the Spirit of God is doing in you. In other words, he says to them, uh, let me read this to you again, but if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more about yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome Him in whom He dwells, in whom He dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life. He'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. When he's talking about making quickening your mortal body, he's saying it in the context of what the spirit does to make us alive to God. What I, what I love about this is even the whole idea of resurrection. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God raised him from the dead. That comes from a divine source that frees you from your own ability to try to produce this. Oh, you can dress up a corpse. You can drag him around. You can dress up Ishmael to make him look like Abraham in the face, but he's still got the heart of an Egyptian beating in his breast. But when you get reborn again and regenerated and the Spirit of Christ comes in you, God begins to do in you 
uh, hallelujah, what you could not do for yourself. And then he talks about in verses above that all the law could do, and the Message Bible says, is all it could do was be a band-aid on sin and not the deep healing of it. God doesn't just want you to stop sinning. He wants to, he wants to heal what is causing that. I think so many times we never get to the root. We always deal with the surface. So we've got all kinds of band-aid religion. And maybe today, by the Spirit, while you're watching this program, God can rip that religious band-aid off of you so He can really begin to heal. I don't know about you, but I think people are desperate for authentic, real Christianity and not hypocritical uh, self-help programs that can only modify your behavior and not really heal the problem. You know, I could literally say, you know, sometimes I think that we, 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 we look at, I look at sometimes even addiction prog- problems that people have, and, and some of the problems that I see people have even in addiction have come from condemnation and guilt that keeps on putting them back on this treadmill of success, failure, success, failure, success, failure, and then they're off of this treadmill. And what we do, we call it rehabilitation, but what we do is rehabit them. All we do is change their habits. But I want you to know that when Jesus comes in, He doesn't rehabit you, He regenerates you. He gives you a new DNA, a divine regene, and I stress the word genes here, a new DNA, a divine nature attribute that He puts inside of us that begins to lift us out. Because what happens is that people simply change addictions. I can remember even growing up and and coming through some of that stuff where I was disqualified constantly. I probably shouldn't chase this rabbit, but I'm going to anyway. And, and we would, we would, you know, we would, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we we turned away from what we thought was God, but really what we were doing was rebelling against the religious system. And finally left there, and I got involved in some things, not because I wanted to sin, but because I was looking for unconditional love and acceptance, and the only ones that would accept me was the long-haired, you know, drug-doing guys, and and got into drugs a little bit in my early teenage years. Not because I wanted to do drugs, but because my self-esteem was so shot by religion that I was simply looking for some acceptance, and the only group that would accept me was these, what we call weird, you know, hippie-type people. But then I came back to the things of God, because I heard somebody preach grace, and include me back in. They told me I was good enough to be in the house of God. And when I got there, finding out God loved me just like I was, I gave my heart back to Jesus. But what had happened was I got delivered from the drugs, but the same thing that was driving my addiction in, 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 in those types of things of the world was beginning to drive my addiction in ministry. And so I thought, well, you know, I've always felt like I was never good enough. I, you know, in this verse here we're reading where we know who God is and He knows who we are. We, our new identity is expressed in here. And it, 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 you know, it's not a grave-tending life, but it's a God giving us a fresh identity. And I would go to events and think, well, I don't fit here. I, you know, I'm a peculiar people. And what that meant to us is we were weird and, you know, nobody, you know, we're not good enough for anything. I just struggled with that my whole life. But when I got in ministry, I thought, well, if I could just preach for this guy, I would finally feel affirmed and accepted and I've made it. And then I'd preach for that guy and it wasn't enough. And then I would preach for, I think, if I need, I need to preach for this guy, because if I could preach for this guy, then I've climbed the ladder and I'm feeling affirmed. And I'd preach for this guy, and then it wasn't enough. And then I'd preach for this guy, and it wasn't enough. And I'll never forget back in the mid 2000s, I'd preached, and probably shouldn't say this, but I will anyway, but I'd preached in a conference with, uh, for Bishop Eddie Long in Atlanta, Georgia, alongside of several others. I won't mention their names. 
But I preached in this conference, and when I walked on the platform of that huge mega church, the Holy Spirit said to me, Son, if you're looking for the approval of men, it doesn't get any bigger than this. But if you're satisfied with my approval, that you're accepted in the beloved, and you're good enough for me, you will never look for the approval of men again. And it set me free from addiction, from addiction to the approval of men. And it set me free because once I knew my identity as a son or daughter of God, I didn't need man's approval anymore. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't need to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, but I didn't need their approval so that you might see me one week preach in a mega church and the next week preach for 30 people. And you, those that follow my ministry know that's absolutely the truth. But I don't get my identity from what I do. So what we do with all of these, uh, what I call Band-Aid religions, is we don't ever get to the deep healing of it. We simply change addictions, and we get addicted to maybe ministry or something, or, or man's approval. But I'm telling you, God wants to heal deeply in us by bringing us into a revelation of who we are, and who He is. And that's the travail. And so Paul goes on to say, uh, as we get down here, he says, that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God arousing us within, we are also feeling the birth pains. These sterile, barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us, helping our infirmities. If we don't know how to or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Now, let me say, I'm going to deal with this whole concept of birth pains in just a little while and probably be in my next segment. But I want to touch this because Paul said, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed. And we, every, everybody I've ever heard teach the Scripture, it always teaches it, at, at, teaches it as a future reality. But I believe that what if you read the context of how I'm teaching this, you can see that it's very present reality with an ongoing, an ongoing fulfillment. Every generation perhaps experiences this God living in us. But this is not an event waiting for somewhere in the future. And I'll try to touch some of the eschatological viewpoints of this in my next segment. What I'm after in this one is where Paul said, 
For I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now remember, when, when, when we were talking about this, that chapter 7 were servants, chapter 8 were sons, waiting on God's sons to come into their own. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, I had a very dear friend, and he's passed on, went to be with the Lord. He used to play the trumpet for Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller, and I mention his name because he's already gone on to be with the Lord, but he would probably shout from the balconies of glory and say amen today if he could hear me. But his name was Charlie Ryan, and I used to preach for him in Houston all the time, and a tremendous trumpet player. But back in the days when I first came into an understanding of the things of God, there was a message that was very powerful concerning suffering. And, and, and we magnified suffering to the point where the more you suffer, and if you suffer enough, one of these days you're going to be a son. So much so that people wouldn't even receive prayer for healing because they were suffering so that God could be revealed. They were suffering because the suffering of this present time was what was going to produce sonship. And boy, we thought the more we suffered, the more, the better we were going to be, you know. And so we were magnifying suffering. And I'll never forget Charlie saying to me one day, he said to me, he said, Lynn, he said, I don't think I'm a son. I said, well, Charlie, if you're not a son, then I don't know if I've even got a chance. I said, because dude, I think you grow, glow in the dark. If you're not a son, I surely don't have a chance. And I said, why don't you think you're a son? And he looked around like he was dealing drugs out of the trunk of his car, almost like afraid to tell me. But he says, I'm not suffering. I said, you're not suffering. He said, no. He said, the church is going good. Finance is all right. Me and the wife are getting along. The kids are behaving. My health is good. Maybe I'm not part of the elect. And he was despondent because he wasn't suffering. One day he was walking his dog, his great Dane, and he was walking down the sidewalk. And he said, I was concerned that I wasn't suffering. And he said, all of a sudden, Clouds begin to roll in, a thunder peeled, lightning pierced the sky. He said, that dog took off running, jerked me, threw me down over the curb. When I hit the curb, he said, I dislocated my shoulder, tore my rotator cuff. He said, I laid there in pain and said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the suffering. And I, I laugh at that now because, see, that's just the dumb in kingdom. And Charlie, were alive today, he would say that's true. That suffering is not what Paul was talking about. What you have to do is put yourself in this first century audience and realize that what Paul's suffering was talking about is he was talking about suffering because he was preaching a message that was diametrically opposed to the religious system of his day. He was talking about freedom from law, legalism, and the transition of the covenants, and God bringing about a new covenant, and declaring that the resurrection of Jesus had declared that God's new creation project is now underway. That what creation was groaning for was now on the scene. And that the suffering that he was undergoing was the persecution that was coming from the synagogue, most of the persecution that these first century apostles were experiencing was coming from the religious leaders of their day. It wasn't coming from, it was coming from Rome as well, but only because of what the scribes and Pharisees and the rulers of the synagogue were stirring up against them most of the time. It was the pressure from Judaizers 
that were removing them from their company. And, you know, Paul was uh, talking about, you know, the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed. Because there was birth pains on that first century church. And I'm going to come back and pick up some of these scriptures about this travail and uh, this, these birth pains and show you some things in context that it was talking about a, a messianic rebirth of the world that was about to come because a new day was about to dawn. The old covenant age was about to pass off the scene and a new covenant age was about to come on the scene. And with that was a lot of pain and travail and persecution and being excommunicated. But what Paul was saying is with the removal of this old law and this way of doing it through the flesh and through human effort, who will deliver me? Watch this from the body of this death. Thank God he will. And then when you get down into Romans 8, he talks about if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, it will quicken your mortal body. He's talking about moving from law to grace. And then when he talks about in Romans 8, the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Let me just get you one scripture here real quickly if I can find it. But uh, I think it's Galatians where he says, uh, my little children, uh, verse 19, uh, Galatians 4, 19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That's not way out in our distant future. That was something Paul was saying that was available then. And he's using this whole birth pain uh, language to express that I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So Paul talking about the adoption to wit the redemption of the body is also used in Galatians 5, where he says we are waiting uh, for the adoption, and he's talking about the adoption there being placed as full-grown sons, no longer under governors and tutors, which was the law, and being delivered from law, and being brought into a glorious liberty of the sons of God, where we have received our inheritance, and where our bodies were quickened by the power of His resurrected life. And the groanings that we have within us are the same groanings that he had in Romans 7, looking for God to do the work in us. And he tells you that even sometimes we don't know how to pray, but what we do is we pray in the Spirit with groanings and utterances, for the Spirit knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And he prays for us with groanings that he knows what we're... That's one of the wonderful things about the power of the Holy Spirit living in our lives is the Spirit itself knows our weakness and our firmities, and prays for us in a way where we don't even know how to pray for, for ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I, we're just about out of time. Let me take a, a little bit longer today, though, to say to you that if you are really being fed by this ministry and enjoying it, we ask you to uh, possibly sow a seed into the ministry. Uh, it costs a lot for television, and those of you who watch us know that we do not spend much time trying to raise funds for the television program. We're thankful for our faithful partners 
who have helped us touch the world through television and through all of the media outlets that we have. But we do need your help. And if you would like to sow a seed into the ministry, go to the link on this website, or you can scan it with your phone. That QR code will take you directly to a link where you can give through our PayPal portal, through your credit card, your debit card, or whatever. You can also set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner. You can become a monthly partner by sending a check or money order as well. Or you can call the number on the screen. Someone will take your call. If you don't receive an answer, leave a message. And if you'd like to have a callback, we'll be glad to do that. God bless you, but do that today. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.